You're listening to That'll Preach. Welcome to our show. We have another great interview lined up. Uh, We have Dr. Matthew Lapine. He's the Director of Christian Education at City Light Church in Omaha, Nebraska, the Midwest. And uh, he's going to be joining, talking about a book he's written called The Logic of the Body. So, uh, Matt, thank you for joining us. Yeah, Brian, thanks so much for having me on. So I read this book a couple years ago, and uh, I was fascinated by it because you talk a lot about what you call uh, uh, retrieving theological psychology, which I'm like, oh, that's an interesting phrase. And especially today, when people are talking more and more about psychology and the emotional life, many times people are wary about it because of, you know, are we using psychology to kind of twist scripture? Are we reading too much of that into the Christian tradition? And your book was really interesting because you're saying like, actually, stuff like emotions and the emotional life, that's not foreign to the Christian tradition. And uh, so that, that was a really fascinating book that you've written. And I'm curious, from your end, uh, what inspired you to write The Logic of the Body? You know, you mentioned psychology kind of being a, a scary thing, especially, um, you know, in conservative evangelical circles. Um, but w- w- the Retrieving Theological S- Psychology subtitle is really trying to get at the fact that psychology has always been a part of the, of, of theology. Um, it's, I mean, it's part of philosophy from Plato to and Aristotle uh, onward. Um, but what what happens is with the with the developments of the Enlightenment, you have a um, you know a mechanistic conception of the human person uh, along with a very rigid um, methodology, and psychology gets birthed as a as a discipline as an academic discipline within the universities, but. Um, really, I mean, for four centuries before that, the 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 uh, the word was used, um, and you were th- there was there was the study of the soul, and there was the study of the body, and they were, sort of went hand in hand. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm basically just trying to say, look, when psychology became a discipline in the 19th century, theologians kind of stopped talking about it, and um, for that reason, a lot in a lot of ways, our we have to have psychological assumptions coming into our theological work, but our psychological assumptions are underdeveloped and um, in some ways kind of frozen in time uh, in, in the 19th century. And so um, what my, my work is really going back to a, Thomas Aquinas, which was incredibly medically integrated, his, his work was. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say there's no, there's no methodological reason why we shouldn't be paying attention to the natural world. Um, and, uh, you know, Aquinas was drawing heavily from a, um, a doctor named Nemesius. And um, so I, I think that we can do integrative work that is thoroughly theological. And so that's that's the point that I'm trying to make. The logic for me actually began with um, just some, some interpersonal, I mean, I had a close family member who uh, was dealing with mental health challenges. And uh, I was in seminary at the time. And I was actually being trained by a guy who studied at, at um, CCEF, Westminster, uh, did his PhD out there. And I was being trained in biblical counseling, which um, I have a ton of respect for biblical counseling. Um, but the tools that I had been given to try and help with uh, obsessive compulsive disorder uh, were not helpful, at least in, ter- in terms of how I had internalized them. Um, and things may be more sophisticated uh, now than it was in the early 2000s with CCEF on OCD. But um, 
what, uh, what ended up happening was we basically just kind of figured it out as we went along, but it created this tension between my, my theology, which was sort of very much interlinked with um, what I had learned in biblical counseling and, and the work of John Piper and, you know, Puritan uh, psychology, that, that theology was in tension with what worked for OCD. <laughs> and uh, um, so that was a tension that I just kind of held on to for, for a really long time. But um, it wasn't until I got into my PhD work where I really encountered, um, you know, some people who were paying attention to embodiment. And I started learning about the way that emotion is embodied. Uh, I was a big cognitivist about emotion. I was a big fan of Martha Nussbaum and, and um, Robert Roberts and, and I still am. Uh, but I, I began to I began to feel like um, I had missed a huge chunk of of I I couldn't understand what had worked in in helping out this uh, close family member, and um, then I I read actually Kent Dunnington's book Addiction and Virtue, um, which was fascinating because I, I was already a huge fan of virtue ethics and and um, theological ethics and. And I, I thought, oh, <laughs> there's something here in Thomas Aquinas, because he talks about addiction and Thomas Aquinas, he applies Thomas Aquinas to addiction. I said, there's something here, and it seems to be more holistic and embodied. Uh, and so I followed that up with Nicholas Lombardo, the, the, um, uh, the Logic of Desire, which is the inspiration for my book title. Um, and Nicholas Lombardo's book was just just blew my mind. And so that was, that was where the, dis basically, I had a problem and I realized, oh, there are theological resources that exist that actually help solve this problem. And so it just kind of brought all these interests together, philosophy, history of uh, history of philosophy, theology, and psychology together, uh, and kind of made them mesh together in a way which was uh, really beautiful. And I thought, um, indicated that I was in touch with reality on this question. I've noticed that oftentimes, and maybe this is more of a social media phenomenon, but people will write about the toxic culture of Christianity or even just wholesale the ideas of it are bad. And then they'll list out ways in which a lot of mental health struggles were handled poorly in the church or didn't hmm. deliver on promises, whether explicit promises or implicit promises on what this way of doing things would help you. And so your story about OCD and, and, the, and your family member uh, is, I, I think that hits onto something. Where mm. in the practical application, like you said, there's some kind of tension there. And mm. uh, and I think it's important to think about how, you know, people who give advice on how to apply scripture, they're already going through a kind of grid in their mind. Right. They already kind yeah. of have a presupposition there. And you you have a phrase, I think it's emotional voluntarism. Mm -hmm. yeah, and yeah. Uh, that was a fascinating concept that you laid out. What What is emotional volunteerism and why is that something that you kind of circled and, and focused on? Yeah, I, I had noticed that um, when people were talking about emotion, um, well, it seemed like they were drawing from a pretty simple psychology about emotion. So emotion was just a, a, an act of the will. Um, and so it seemed like what people were saying was that it's possible to change your emotion, presumably right away, by adjusting what you, you know, your ideas or your thoughts about something. And so, um, you know, maybe not quite like moving your arm uh, to adjust your emotion, but it, but it was it 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 sort of put emotion in a category that seemed more 
actively in our control than um, than I thought was was realistic. And so, emotional volunteerism just simply refers to that that the the fact that um, emotions are far more in my control, um, and I can adjust them by adjusting my thoughts. And I should be able to do that fairly quickly. And, and because emotions are moral, then I have a duty to do that as quickly as possible. And what it, the only thing I disagreed with in that whole framework was the fact that um, emotion was the idea of our control over emotion. So if emotion is more embodied, the control I have over emotion might be more like the control I have over my houseplant, <laughs> which, which like I want a good houseplant, right? So I'm going to try and care for my houseplant. But... Uh, I don't. I don't have total control over the situation. I mean, my cat could get to it, or you know, I could you know be gone for a couple of weeks and not be able to water it, or something like that. But um, but the point is, I, I'm going to take action. But I also am not. Um, you know, I'm I'm gardening it. I'm cultivating it. And it seemed to me that that was a much better metaphor about how we manage our bodies, uh, because there's a there's a good part of our bodies that's not within our control. Our sympathetic nervous system is reacting in response to our unconscious ways of reading the world. And it's releasing all sorts of hormones and neurotransmitters that's changing blood flow patterns and, and uh, it's forming habits. Like our entire nervous system is plastic in the sense that it can form new pathways and those pathways can become durable. And so it seemed like the organic nature of humanity was important when we started talking about how emotional maturity develops. Habit can be good or bad. Uh, if it's bad, uh, you know, you've got profound dysfunction that can form. But the, the good part about habit is that you can actually form virtue. And so I thought actually plasticity was at the core of virtue ethics. And plasticity made the most sense of how we are holistically created body and soul uh, as a holistic unity. I like the organic imagery because it, uh, on the one hand, you have a responsibility, you have to do things to make a plant grow, but you can't just go up to the soil and just start pulling it out of the ground. You right. know, <laughs> there's more of an organic process that takes time. And, uh, and you know, I think in a lot of ways, patience. Um, yes. You, you do yeah. talk a little bit about anxiety in your book. And I thought that that was something that, you know, I, I feel like if, if you post something about anxiety, you're gonna get like a million likes because everybody feels anxious mm. and, you think about Paul's command about don't be anxious about anything. And it sounds like an emotional volunteer's thing would be like, flip the switch, stop, mm -hmm. you know? Right. And it sounds like you're saying, well, that's not really the way we should be interpreting that or, or, or taking that. Um, yeah. Now, I think you could say, well, yeah, I feel like you, and anytime you try to go against that idea, people are kind of like looking at you like, are you going to? Talk about the Enneagram. Are you going to talk about something, you know, worldly and psychological? <laughs> yeah. right, right. But actually, and I mentioned this in the beginning, you go back to some of the heavy hitters. Well, and and part of part of what I'm doing, so, I, I mean, to be frank, Aquinas is really the hero of the dissertation. And, but what I'm, what I'm trying to do by going from Aquinas to Calvin is I'm trying to show that, um, you know, Calvin is sometimes seen as, as, perhaps more important to the Reformed tradition than he actually is. <laughs> and so um, my my choice of Calvin has more to do with the fact that people look at him as, as you know, in some ways the father of, of Reformed theology. And, um, you know, the, this, the actual situation is much more complicated than that. But um, 
what I'm tracing is I'm tracing how uh, the there were actually developments between Aquinas and Calvin about the nature of the soul in particular and how it related to the body that actually changed the scope of the conversation. <laughs> so, so for Aquinas, for instance, um, there was uh, the relationship between intellect and will was like there wasn't the there wasn't the voluntarist controversy. So, so you didn't have this. Um, um, you had this happy marriage of in, of intellect and will in Aquinas, uh, th but there developed th this idea that. Um, the will actually needed to be free to choose against the, the intellect's dic dictates or you didn't have free will. And so the, the, the controversy actually created a situation where uh, Calvin's not really addressing the same problems that Aquinas was, not because he fundamentally disagrees with Aquinas, but because the questions had shifted. And so, um, um, yeah, so what I'm what I'm trying to what I'm trying to recover is actually that holistic psychology that Aquinas offered um, that was that was medically integrated, and it's it's interesting because in some ways the Reformed tradition um, kind of had a had a, um, a a deeper and closer relationship to Aristotle after Calvin than uh, than Calvin did, but what 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 was consistent was that uh, there, there, the, the ideas of how body and soul related had changed. And they changed in an ir irreversible way, all the way up to um, Rene Descartes, who had you know, a famous sort of, the soul is a thinking thing view, and the body is pure mechanism. And so th that's kind of where we sit. But, but I actually think that the older view that the soul is responsible for all of our living functions is is not just plausible, but I think it's it's a persuasive view, and so um, uh, you know I'm pushing back on on the sort of Cartesian um, soul that still exists in a lot of uh, reform circles. I, I wrote down. I remember I was reading through your book because you you talked about Aquinas's holistic uh, psychology, and you talk about the the tiered accounts, and that was fascinating to me. And I can see what you mean. I guess toward Calvin, it seems like you're saying he's not as holistic. <laughs> he, not he's as maybe holistic, more pessimistic yeah. about. He's more pessimistic about how the body and your <clears throat> habit forms you. Yeah, the the body was seen as as irrational, um, and I the so the thing about Aquinas, which was helpful, was that his tiered psychology actually created this middle space where the where the the passions were you could call them sort of semi-rational. <laughs> Um, because they they were informed by the judgments of reason and informed by the will's choices. So, like you, this is common sense, right? So, uh, let's say that um, you know my passions love donuts, for instance. Um, like th that's that's not just a fixed situation. I mean, maybe I will always crave donuts. I don't know, but it is possible for me to be so firmly convinced at the fact that, you know, uh, that much sugar is terrible for me and to be so firmly committed to choosing against eating sugar that I actually don't even crave donuts anymore. And, and, and that's what I mean is that the, the, the passions lead the way in the moment, but actually over time, your reason and will leads the way. Um, and so, it, the the passions are able to be informed by reason and they're able to be informed by the will's choices over time that they they can develop uh, different habits 
And so that makes them sort of semi-rational. In the moment, they're responding directly to the object, the, to the apparent good. But over time, they're actually informed uh, by our rational powers. And that idea of that sort of middle space uh, dropped out by the time uh, that Calvin was writing. So there's a kind of an interplay between like our emotions and, and, and our reason or faculties. And I think uh, I, I read uh, The Righteous Mind a couple years ago, oh, yeah. Jonathan Haidt. And I think mm -hmm. you even mentioned that, I don't know if in your book or in, in podcasts that you talked about where he has the elephant and the rider illustration and he's basically saying that yeah. we're never just thinking. We're, we're kind yeah. of, we're feeling, we're reacting. And then uh, like the elephant is kind of like our emotional responses to things. And then the mm -hmm. rider's our will. And yep. you kind of have to deal with the elephant so that the rider can actually start to harness, you know, the, the, the rider can actually harness the elephant. The elephant has to kind of be calmed down and, and dealt yeah. with on a different level. And I felt like when you were talking about this tiered psychology with, and that middle ground that Aquinas is talking about, I'm like, is Jonathan H just ripping off of Aquinas? It, there seemed to be a lot of <laughs> interplay between those two. And I'm wondering, yeah. as you discover this in Aquinas, what was that like for you? Was that like an aha moment? Like, whoa, this was here this whole time? Or what was this, what yeah, was that moment I, like? So I called it tiered psychology. I could have called it dual process theory. Uh, dual process theory is a thing. And I've, you know, I, I think uh, dived, is that the right word? Dived more into that um, after writing the book. Um, but yeah, so Jonathan Haidt would, is, a, is a perfect example of someone who's, writing on the same topics. Uh, you asked me earlier kind of what has changed since I, I read the, wrote, the, uh, wrote the book. Um, but that was actually one of the things is I realized um, that there were some ways in which I significantly disagreed with uh, Jonathan Haidt. So he does, he does talk about the rider and the elephant, but his, his point is actually that the elephant leads the way. Um, and there's only certain circumstances where the rider actually gets precedent over the elephant. But uh, Thomas Aquinas's view is the opposite. It's that reason and, and will actually lead the way. And I think, I think Aquinas is right because height is sort of time bound in the moment of, of decision. Like he, he thinks about the fact that our passions lead the way in the moment of decision. But I actually think that there's a much more, it's uh, we have much more control over ourselves in the, over the long haul. <laughs> and this, this gets back to this organic metaphor too, is that, I, what I'm, what I'm really after is you mentioned it earlier with pa about patience, like a, a, a more robust account, you know, so when, when Paul says, don't be anxious, or when Jesus says, don't be anxious, um, you know, I, I treat Matthew six at length in the dissertation, but I, what I, what I'd like to, what I'd like to have come to, to people's mind is yes, that, that, that moral directive not to be anxious uh, I think Jesus' word is is more sort of comfort, but Paul's word is is in uh, um, in Philippians is about reliance, is about uh, casting our cares on Jesus, right? Um, but that moral directive needs to be taken seriously, but also within the framework of of understanding that that sort of uh, the disciplines of de dependence take root in our in our bodies slowly over time. So this is progressive sanctification. So um, you know, if we think that anxiety is like an action in the specific moment, uh, we're going to find that those commands extremely discouraging. <laughs> but if we have a sense, the fact that that we are actually as as uh, moral agents responsible for the stewardship of our body, we're, we're responsible for cultivating our body over time, um, then the the uh, 
the ways that our, our minds can be enlightened by, by, the, by Scripture and by the truths of the gospel and the hope that we have in Jesus actually can take root and, 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 and end up uh, building maturity within our bodies um, so that we have um, the maturity to hope. And I, I just think Paul's maturity in Ephesians is just phenomenal. Um, for him, I mean, his hope was so deeply rooted in the resurrection that he could say, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Right. Um, I, I just, I really aspire to that sort of Christian maturity. That's a helpful clarification. Now that you, you mentioned it, if, if height might recognize a similar mechanism and, or a similar way in which we operate, but he may be... In terms of outcomes, he may be more pessimistic about what the rider can do for the elephant. Is that kind yeah, of idea? yeah, yeah? And, he's uh, he's human. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's helpful to hear because, and, and I do like what you said about the "don't be anxious." If you think about it as like moment to moment, uh, then that can be. Uh, you not only are you like, well, that didn't work, but mm -hmm. now it's a moral imperative, and I've sinned, you know, or something like that, right. and that, that's kind of a, a vicious cycle there. But having a long-term view, and, and I even think, now that I'm thinking about that passage, he talks about instead of being anxious, you know, devote yourself to prayer, which itself right. is a, he's not saying like um, there's a magic prayer that you say that takes away the anxiety, <laughs> yeah. but a way of life, a way of living that takes time. Yes. And, yes. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I like that idea. And, and you, did, you did talk about uh, seeking first the kingdom. You mentioned, you, you spent mm -hmm. your dissertation on that. What was yeah. compelling to you about that particular verse, about seeking first the kingdom and all these things be added to you and those kinds of ideas um, yeah, yeah. in terms of well, patience and the, and the long haul? I had heard a lot of Matthew 6, and I wanted to spell out just what sort of bothered me about some of the treatments. Uh, I cited one scholar who says that, that uh, the prohibition against anxiety was absolute in Matthew 6. <laughs> hmm. and, and I just, you know, when I read it, just you know, without any sort of exegetical analysis, I just thought, boy, this feels like comfort, not uh, heavy handed command. <laughs> right. Um, and, and so, I mean, it's like what I would say to my daughter if, if I come at night and say, hey, don't be scared, you know. Um, but, but there is some teeth in that text too, because um, he's, he's also ground, he's all, I mean, I, in some ways, the opposite of anxiety is seeking the kingdom. So, so I wanted to maintain that, like that is the op opposite of anxiety, but, um, but he also uses, uh, um, he uses these uh, uh, metaphors of the bird and the, the tree, you know, or the flower, uh, two things that can be destroyed by the wind, you know, and um, he, he also, you know, promises help. Um, he, you know, and then uh, says that it's in our best interest uh, to, to act this way. So it's not, in terms of a speech act, it's actually not a command. It's it's uh, it's an inducement and an advisement, right? But um, but it but it is. We still have to have teeth in it, in the sense that if we put our hope in temporal things, in an ultimate sense, uh, we have grounds to be anxious. But if we put our hope in the kingdom, but but I think the the reason that the kingdom was compelling as a theme there for me was. Um, that uh, we are still uh, sojourners and strangers. <laughs> so like uh, the, the, que the real question for us is, are we exiles? And the answer to that is yes, we're still in exile. So the, 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 our, our fruitful and blessed relationship with the land has, has not been restored and our bodies come from the land and they return to the, to the land, the, the ground, the uh, Adama, right? And so um, 
we still live in the in the already not yet. So Romans 8 says creation groans and we ourselves groan awaiting the redemption of our bodies. And uh, I think that that's really important is that um, those commands to be anxious have an already not yet aspect to them. That That's what Christian maturity is, is, is it's the question of how we deal with the anxiety, which, which often is present in our bodies. Uh, do, do we turn to temporal comforts uh, to try and solve those problems by taking control, uh, much like Adam and Eve did in Eden, or do we rest in the God who is here with us in the midst of the struggle, even as we're groaning, and will re- redeem our bodies? And, and I thought that that was really important. That, that we not have what I would call an over-realized eschatology of embodiment. Uh, we, we're, our body's still grown. We're still in the already not yet. I just did a, uh, an interview recently with Dr. Mike Allen at RTS Orlando, and he was talking about the sorrow of the Christian life. And he mm-hmm. used that kind of already not yet metaphor where he's saying, in a sense, we're never going to have our full joy in Christ in this life. We're never yeah. going to know his presence fully. There's going to be a sense of lack and incompleteness in our devotional life. We're never going to love and, and have this yeah. ecstasy about God every moment. And that's a, a weird expectation to have. And what you're saying kind of tracks with that, where it's like, it's it's almost like saying, you know, look, you're going to be anxious and you're a human. And we live mm-hmm. in this world and things aren't right and things aren't fixed. And this isn't like an on-off switch where if you're a good Christian, you switch to the seek the kingdom button on and your anxiety light turns off. Mm-hmm. Rather, a broader vision of the, uh, of almost a, a perspective of seeing the world of like, okay, is your life attached to these temporal things? And over time, what's like yeah. the trajectory? You yeah, know, yeah. As opposed to moment to moment kind of, you know, mm-hmm. like, like it's a, you dispense this or you do this and this thing happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it, it's about what's the truest thing about me, right? I mean, mm. like, like faith, um, faith is not the, the, the magic elixir that, that, that changes, you know, all my neural pathways to, to be perfectly aligned. What, what faith is, is it's, it's the looking for, you think of even Jesus in Gethsemane. Uh, why did he go through Gethsemane? Why did he go through the cross? The joy that was set before him. And, and so that sort of faith is what's necessary to please God. And that faith rests in a hope that is beyond this life. And um, I mean, I, I've always been just really intrigued by, by Romans 8 and uh, where, where it says that God subjected the earth to the curse in hope. <laughs> it's yeah. like, what, 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 do you, what is that? Like, what, what hope is there in a curse? And I think it, it, it's connected to what you just said about Mike Allen, which is that lack produces longing. And that longing, I mean, C.S. Lewis would say that longing is itself uh, pleasurable. It's it's this it's this uh, um, th- there's a there's a joy, but it's a haunted joy. It's it's a joy that experiences something, but wants more of it, wants a fullness of it. And I think that that's um, that's what the the Christian life is psychologically. That that there is so much joy and so many echoes of Eden that we that we recognize through common grace and through God's special intervening grace and the, and the gifts that the spirit provides in the church. But, but even all those things are just, they're just tainted. They're imperfect. They're, they're, they're um, touched by sin and brokenness in a way which leads us to long uh, for that new city. Um, the, the, uh, the revelation 21 city where there's no more tears and, and uh, no more death. Right. I know uh, you've uh, mentioned 
I think it was a, I, I listened to an interview that you did where you, we talked about perfectionism in Christian circles. Mm. And I thought that was a fascinating, you know, observation because I, I, I think about, ironically, if you kind of accept your finitude and that there's a longing, a haunted longing, as you say, you might actually calm down because you're not expecting all these things to happen now or to be, yeah. or faith to be the magic elixir. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, <laughs> But I, I'm kind of curious about that idea of perfectionism. Where do you see that or what, where did that, I don't know if you remember you you saying that, but that was kind of an interesting thread that I was curious about. Yeah. I The, uh, the first thing that came to mind, which is probably totally off, off the point, but this is kind of my golfing philosophy. The, the key to happiness in life is to lower your expectations. <laughs> but <laughs> there's no, a, probably a lot of truth to that. Yeah. But no, I mean, in a, in a real serious way, I mean, I, we, we have, um, you know, I come from a fundamentalist background and there just were, there were so many um, kids within that background that, and, and honestly, this is my concern with a lot of parenting books that were written in the nineties and early two thousands as well, is that there was, um, there was this idea that uh, we ought to strive for holiness in a, in a really deep way. Um, but I, I'm not sure that it was, and I'm not sure that it was framed in entirely healthy ways um, because in, at the end of the day, the, the core of, of, of Christianity is that we are no longer curved in on ourselves. So Matt Jensen's written a great book, The Gravity of Sin, which talks about being curved in on yourself as the core of sin, um, but that we regain our, our dependence on the triune God, like that, that we're... we're um, caught up into the fellowship of love and, and joy that the, the, the all-sufficient triune God possesses in his life, right? And so, um, you know, this, this perfectionism uh, even sort of penetrated to the emotional states. Uh, this is the parenting literature again, is that, you know, you weren't supposed to just um, parent for behavior modification, but you're supposed to parent for the heart, which again is a great sentiment. But in reality, what it turned out to me was that there were a lot of parents that weren't even happy when their kids did the right thing. They, they were they were only happy when they did it with a smile on their face. And what would happen is that these kids would develop just the, this paranoia of of not being able to please mom or dad, whatever they did. And I've seen just heartbreaking examples of this, including in in with close loved ones, of of how this has created just generational scars. And um, for me, reading G.K. Chesterton was so um, was so freeing on this on this front because I just there was the uh, Chesterton emphasizes the buoyancy and and the lightness of 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 God and uh, the the levity of God and and the levity of of the angels. And I just um, I just found that really, uh, really freeing because there, there is um, there is in the gospel an acknowledgement that um, it is my joy to participate in the life of God and to be conformed to His image, but that's entirely by God's grace and initiative. Like I, my life is hid with Christ in God, and um, I think that that should should open up uh, a, a sense of joy and. And buoyancy, which can even cut through the the, the deepest um, and darkest forms of suffering that we have, that that can can buoy us up even even in the darkness. So you talk about the importance of thinking about being embodied. You know that that our emotions are an important part of our life, mm -hmm. and that they are not opposed to our 
will necessarily, but there's an interplay between them and there's a formation over time that it's not just mm -hmm. thinking the right thoughts, but sometimes doing the right things can yeah. form your thoughts and your affections and, and, and it's a more holistic view. You yep. mentioned this earlier about the Garden of Gethsemane, but I, and this part I think is one of the most moving parts in your book, where you kind of talk about Jesus's own, I don't know, for lack of a better term, anxiety or his own that moment of mm -hmm. sweating drops of blood and intense pain. Yeah, I I always think about that because I'm like, man, he had perfect theology. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Like you would often yeah. think, if you knew how it would work out, you wouldn't feel <clears throat> X, but he yeah. knew how it would work out, and he felt the full weight of something very human. Yeah. Yeah. And something that was deeply physiologically involving, right? Right. <clears throat> right. Yeah. You talk about stress. Like he's, he's under stress yeah. in that moment. And I'm like, man, if the son of God can be stressed, then, you yeah. know, then, then at least then, in, at least in the case of one person that, yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and actually this is one of the things that kind of bothers me uh, about John Calvin. I, I mean, I, I, I love John Calvin, but mm -hmm. when he talks about Jesus in Gethsemane, he talks about how, um, you know, he even prays the prayer, um, take this cup from me, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, right. and and Calvin's like, um, and then he immediately corrects himself, and, and I'm just like, I, wh why can't this just be a prayer of of humanness? Uh, yeah. Uh, what, why isn't it possible for at least in one instance someone to be uh, sinlessly experiencing this sort of <clears throat> anxiety and sadness? Yeah. And it's, it, that was really grounding for me to realize, man, if it's in a sense, if it's okay for Jesus, it's gotta be okay for us. Right. And, and right. I, I think it gave a humanness to, there's a way that you can feel the weight and feel overwhelmed and feel distress. And it's not a lack of faith. It's not a lack of sanctification. It is mm -hmm. the fact that you're a human being, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and one one other avenue into this, at least for me, is um, there's a neat division between soul and body that some people maintain, where the body, like when things go wrong in the body, it's a medical problem. And when things go wrong in the soul, it's a spiritual or moral problem. <laughs> and if, if our psychology is genu genuinely holistic and those things are are holistically interlinked, like, like that we don't make a distinction between the, our functions as embodied creatures and our functions as, as ensouled, that all of our functions are just our functions. That means that the evil, which happens to us naturally <laughs> through, through suffering and through, um, you know, breakdowns in, in our body and the moral evil that, that we're bringing to the equation are intertwined in a way that in some ways is, is hard to untangle. Like if I, if I have, you know, a strong reaction um, to something happening, <laughs> like that, it's not obvious to me that that is either sin or suffering. Like it, it might, it might actually be like a, a natural human reaction that is of course tainted by sin and, and my sinfulness because I'm perpetually sort of turning back to being curved in on myself. But it's it's worth it's worth saying that um, it's going to require both impulses to to sort of suffer uh, and uh, you know to to be compassionate towards the suffering, but also to be aware of the fact that I'm going to want to twist that suffering towards towards my own interests rather than resting in in God in the way that He has called me to. And so that's what I mean to me that the. the um, 
this, the secret to, to Gethsemane is that uh, Jesus ultimately hides himself entirely in the will of God, just as he does throughout the rest of his life. And that's, that's the calling for us too, as, as humble, dependent agents, is that we need to find our life hid in God and, and our will hid in his will, uh, no matter what our suffering may bring to us. Uh, and that's a, um, that's a, that's, that's a heavy, uh, a heavy thing sometimes in the most intense and most uh, dark moments. But, but there is a freedom in, in knowing that um, our hope is not in vain. Like we, we will not ultimately be ashamed. We will, we uh, will, will taste the, the life and the freedom and the, and the glory of being um, in the presence of the triune God. It gives a very kind of broad and powerful vision of what a hopeful person looks like. You know, he's not cheery and chipper and all this stuff. It's mm-hmm. a person full of hope and trust. Dependence can still look like somebody praying up all night and yeah. sweating and, and having that that sense yeah. of sorrow. And I think about Paul, yeah. always sorrowful, always rejoicing. You know, yeah. and, and I think that's that, that. I think they can help people not be overly condemning of themselves when they don't feel like they're hitting yeah. this kind of portrait of what a faithful, joyful Christian would be. Yeah, no, um, yeah, 100%. How has this shaped you on the ground with counseling others and then even looking at your own heart? What are some ways that this has shaped the way that you minister to others and, and, and uh, yeah. your own self? So uh, on the ground, uh, I'll just start with this. Like Sometimes we can get into a situation where we actually when we encounter a counseling situation, um, we can sort of consider emotion to be guilty until proven innocent, <laughs> where we say, uh, oh, someone's anxious, you need to give that anxiety to God. But but then if, if it's bad enough where it's like entirely life dominating, then we'll be like, oh, I wonder actually if this is something chemical. <laughs> and it's like, well, actually, no, this has been chemical the whole time. <laughs> so so the, the, it, the, the holism actually, I think, can can help us to lead with empathy and and um, and compassionate curiosity. Um, but then also to, to shepherd in a genuinely um, Christian way, which, which acknowledges that repentance is necessary and that uh, uh, faith is necessary. But, it, but it, it has to do with what the lead foot is. And, and um, sometimes, you know, walking with someone through grief or walking with someone through anxiety takes a really long time um, to, to, of just empathetic listening and, and digging with them to understand what's going on. I just think that people get impatient that we, in general, our shepherding is pretty impatient. Um, we're, we're, our churches are sort of oriented around programs and, and, and big events and all these things, and, and we want to move on to the next thing. But I think we need to sit with people for a long time. So leading with compassion and patience there. But, but I think in my own life, um, I have, um, you know, I've gone through uh, quite a bit of grief, especially in the last year, and um, that it's been, it's been difficult to, to walk through that on a personal level. Um, but I think that that same sort of patience and compassion, um, I do apply to myself. But, but I think the bigger issue is that I think I think in terms of practices of liturgical practices, I think all of our life, all of obedience is liturgical in the sense that every act of obedience is a practice. It's a, it's a practice of dependence on, on God. It's, it's an act of faith. 
Um, I think that's what Paul means by the obedience of faith, that, that faith becomes embodied through our actions. We present ourselves to instruments of right, as instruments of righteousness, which leads to our sanctification. And so um, I have really, over the last year, prioritized uh, practices of dependence on God. Um, so um, uh, prayer especially, um, just uh, on my face in ways that are embodied and and not just symbolic, but I'm, I'm, it's, I'm taking a posture. I mean, I think that is Roland Bainton's book on Martin Luther that talked about him praying in the position of the cross. <laughs> it's something that I've, the practice that I've taken up this year is just, you know, Monday mornings, especially it's an extended time of prayer and I'll, I'll just lay on my face and just, um, uh, just listen, <laughs> uh, just, just spend time with God. And, um, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying uh, intentionally to um, to be aware of God's presence. I do the daily examine before I go to bed, where I, I go back and I rehearse through the day. I repent of what I need to, but I also acknowledge God's presence and blessing in in the different activities of the day. And so these are things that are, are actually sort of intentionally put on by faith uh, to to shape my body in a way that is that's hopeful. Uh, even in the midst of you know waking up at three in the morning with that same thought of of grief again. So, um, but I, but I think it it, it bears fruit. Uh, I think faith faith bears fruit over time, and I, I hope that God is bringing about a greater maturity and a greater groundedness of faith to me. I know that um, there, there's certainly a lot of ways in which the text, the precious text of Scripture, to me, uh, like uh, ironically James, but uh, Philippians. And uh, Romans and First Corinthians, um, the emotion is a lot clear, closer to the surface than it was. Um, so it's deepened the, hi- the highs and the lows for me, but I think brought about a richer faith. You uh, mentioned, I think, uh, in one of your interviews about the difference between emotional maturity and emotional stability. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that was a very intriguing comment. And maybe as it even applies to pastors and their own emotional maturity or health. Um, yeah. What is the difference between emotional maturity and emotional stability? I mean, to some extent, emotional st- stability, it, I don't think you're talking about kind of the, it, it seems like that someone could appear, just because they appear stable or their emotions are kind of on a line, that that yeah. means that they're emotionally mature. Yeah. Is yeah. that kind of, and, and, you don't, yeah, and you're kind I'm, of challenging that idea. I think I made a Twitter post on this once, which got some people angry. Um, Those the best. Those are the best Twitter posts. Yeah, I'm I'm very intentional. Well, maybe I'll have to take these words back. But I try not to be provocative on Twitter. Actually, I try to try to be kind of boring. Um, But um, I think so. What bothered me, and the reason that I that I made the statement was um, that oftentimes in our evangelical churches we choose elders who are rich, um, but sometimes haven't suffered that much and don't uh, oftentimes don't really understand the um, the intensity of shame that uh, impoverished and um, uh, you know, people who are at the bottom of the ladder feel. Um, so I, I really, I know that, that, that looking back now on his life, Jean Vanier's life uh, was, was shipwrecked and, and with his abuse and all that. But I still think From Brokenest Community is just a beautiful, beautiful book because he illustrates just the, the, the depth of, of grief, of, of um, 
the the severely disabled who who feel just intense amounts of of shame over um, over who they are and their alienation from other people, and um, so I think you know w- sometimes in our churches we look at wealthy people and it seems like you know they've got it all together they're involved in lots of things and you know emotionally they never get riled up, but you know in some ways that's moral luck that's that's the fact that. Um, they haven't gone, and I know some wealthy people have gone through a lot of suffering, but um, but I don't I don't want people to see just the mere emotional stability and say, oh, that's maturity. <laughs> um, I think actually the greater test of maturity is if someone has gone through intense suffering and um, has that sort of calm and peace, which you sometimes see in men that are over fifty five <laughs> or women who are over fifty five in the church, and and I just I think to myself. Um, you know, I, I just am so humbled when I run into those types of guys. I, I knew a couple of guys who, whose sons were addicted to drugs and, and homeless or in prison. And um, I just cannot imagine. I can't imagine. Uh, I can't imagine my daughter calling me and saying, hey, dad, can you help? And me saying, uh, I'll always be your dad, but I'm not going to be your enabler. And... Uh, to see a guy in our church say that with the, the sort of calm reliance that, that God is good was, was incredibly moving and also humbling because, you know, that's a, a, a richness of faith that, that I just don't possess yet, you know? And so, um, I'm trying to remember how I got onto that topic, actually, but yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I, I think that um, there's there's such a yeah there's such an evident maturity in these these uh, older saints who've been through suffering and have found peace and rest in, in the hope that um, the gospel brings, and uh, I think I think sometimes we just we, we just settle for, for people who are sort of emotionally uh, stable and can help us when, when we don't, we don't see that emotional maturity is hard one. I always forget how old Paul is when he writes his letters or Peter, you know, mm. and, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of the accounts of their younger life aren't so flattering, you know, Paul being a persecutor of the church and Peter being just this brash kind of guy. But then right. you see second Peter and, Peter just writing and then first Peter and talking mm-hmm. to, you know, humble yourself before the Lord, tend to the sheep. And Paul, you know, Paul's saying, don't be anxious. But then he's got all these commands. It's like, hey, bear with one another, love one another, be tenderhearted, right. forgive one another. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you think that Paul was a guy who probably was like your friend who had a stability that was, in a sense, hard earned. It was actually forged in the fires of suffering and genuine dependence upon God. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think patience, that is a, that's a difficult thing. And you mentioned a little bit about patience with yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an important thing too. I mean, as you've been talking about just understanding how complex we are, the holistic nature of who we are, a lot of things just take time and it'll take different amounts of time for different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's and, a and category patience, to have. Yeah. Patience isn't weakness. Um, right. Like, like, like I'm not, I'm not affirming that everything that I feel is, 
is good and is mature and healthy and all that. But but I am receiving it. I'm receiving it as me and and as a part of my humanity. And um, and in receiving it, I'm I'm then giving it to Christ um, in a way that makes me lean more deeply into him and and his kindness to me and, and his grace to me. And so I, I think that, um, you know, people's worry is that we're, we're just not going to take sin as seriously if we, um, you know, if we start talking about embodiment and talking about, um, you know, wounds from <laughs> childhood attachment or, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, our bodies are shaped by more than just our personal choices. Our bodies are shaped by more than than um, than just sin. They're they're shaped by our genetics. They're shaped by our experiences. They're they're shaped by um, the suffering that we go through. And um, there's a there's a there's a humility in just admitting where we are and admitting um, the difficulty of where we are. And um, yeah, so there is a there's deep humility in 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 being recognizing who we actually are. And um, being patient with how that is manifested in our bodies and giving that to, to Christ and knowing that his grace is sufficient. Just uh, seeing your daughter just pop in for a moment, it made me think, how has this kind of shaped your parenting? I mean, you talked about some of the negative experiences some of your friends had with different philosophies of parenting. But for you, what, what has it been like for you having studied this and then in real life, you know? with your daughter and your family and all these things. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that, uh, correction is important, but the basis of correction is, is love and, and attachment. And so, um, you know, we've got a daughter who's a little bit more anxious and, and, um, um, I, I think, I think for me, it's just, uh, it's, uh, it's made me a, a just more attentive and responsive father. And and part of that also is just giving up a little bit of my ambition, <laughs> my selfish ambition. Um, so, you know, if, if I can't quite get that project done or, or, or accept the next one or do as well as I wanted, that's fine, but I need to be there um, and have the 45 minutes to give, uh, you know, at the bedside if necessary for my daughter to, to, to show uh, and display that love. And I, you know, I said this in the book that I think we need a theological anthropology that sees a mother rocking a baby as a deeply spiritual act because it, it, it does some, it, it forms their embodiment. And so that is something I'm aware of as a, as a father is that um, the way that I attach with my daughters, the way that I love my daughters, the, the way that I hug them or, or play with them or wrestle with them um, uh, teach them compassion and, and courage and and all those things in an embodied way actually matters and it's part of their moral formation because those are those things the nurture things are actually the foundation for for any sort of moral correction that I'd give they they care about the moral correction because of the the relationship um, it, it's uh, it, it you know I think that's one of the reasons why people struggle. Um, like in our churches, we, we had kids ministry and we had foster and adopted kids that would come to the kids ministry and people just didn't know how to help because, you know, they didn't care when they were corrected <laughs> and they didn't care when they were corrected because they didn't have any trusting or, or any, uh, um, adults in their lives that they trusted or, or were, or were attached to. And so, uh, that, you know, working in kids ministry, I, I used to teach and, uh, lead a class for kids ministry. Um, 
uh, I would, it's a, it's a process of months and months and months. <laughs> like you can't correct everything that they do when, when these uh, foster kids come into the classroom, you have to just love them and, and make eye contact and ask them how they are and who they are and, and, and make yourself known to them. But then six months down the road, you'll see, oh, this is actually making a difference. And so, yeah, I think, I think it just enriches and, and deepens, um, the, the picture of, of, of how love and, and guidance and correction, uh, actually work together to, to shepherd. You know, I, I, I'm not quite sure how to ask this question because it's kind of working through it in my own head as you're talking about, um, you talk about compassion, curiosity, and, and the foundation of love behind correction, all these things. And in my mind, I'm like, you know, I think there's a, a broad, there's a lot of literature about, you know, pastors, shepherd, like almost like the pastor is this, like the, uh, like you have a counseling pastor. And then you guys hmm. have like doctrinal pastors. And then you have like prophetic pastors and you have visionary pastors. And now yeah. it's like, everyone's got to be all of them, you know? And in my right. mind, sometimes I hear this and I'm like, man, that's all good. I need to know that. <laughs> I got to go back and get a counseling degree and then I have to get, you know, a trauma degree and all these things. Yeah, sure. <laughs> what is the pastor's role in helping people through these things in relation to counselors, in relation to the yeah. lay people? I mean, I, I, I could feel it's it can be a little overwhelming where it's like you got to have yeah. another degree entirely to care for people well. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think looking into like um, child development literature what had a had a weird impact on me because it 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 made me realize what the stakes were for nurture uh but it also made me realize how uh simple the solutions were <laughs> so like you know um i, I read the boy who's raised his dog by bruce perry and one of the one of the people that he uh leaned on heavily for um helping children was this woman who didn't have any psychological training, but she just had intuitions that like, it didn't matter if the child was 12, if they'd never been held, she was just going to hold them, you know? And so it's like, uh, if you're in kids ministry, it's not like you need to, um, you know, have a degree in child development. You need to learn how to color with them and look them in the eye, you know? And that these are things that are actually just quite simple. And so I'm not trying to disparage expertise, but, but what I am trying to say is, we live in the modern world, which actually pushes us to a speed that is not human. <laughs> like, like I, I remember, uh, and I'm, I'm probably a little bit, uh, you know, probably a little bit cynical about this, but I just remember, um, that it was in the news in the early two thousands about like how many hours per night, uh, Al Mohler slept. You know, and uh, Wait, cause he like, he's like up till like three in the morning in his like massive library. That's like when he does his work <laughs> yeah, or something right. like that. Yeah. 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 And you, you go back and look at his like posts and they're all at two 30 in the morning. And <laughs> and I'm just like, you know what? That's probably not a good model for you. Um, you you're probably just human and, and you probably just need to, um, you know, take the time and slow down and love people well. Uh, so I don't know if it's so much about degrees as much as it's just recovering a model of pastoral ministry, which is more like Rich, Richard Baxter describes, you know, I think Hal Sankbile's book, um, The Care of Souls, is the, the first pastoral care book that I'd give to anybody um, because, you know, it's it's organic. He's he's talking about um, it's it's the farming metaphor. I mean, this is this is what we're supposed to be doing. And so I do think, um, you know, 
you know, the megachurch models that sort of specializes the pastors, I think is probably just wrong. And um, we, I mean, I, I'm, look, I'm an employee of a megachurch. I have a specialized role, but you, you need to resist that if that's what you, if that's what you're doing. Like you need to, to actually sit down and talk with people and, and care about them over the long haul. Um, because that's what, that's what shepherding is. I mean, just go back and read Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 23 and, and, and ask yourself, what did Jesus mean when he said, I am the good shepherd? <laughs> well, what he means is I'm not like the bad shepherds in Jeremiah 23, which exploit you and don't feed you. <laughs> like, like I'm going to care for you. I'm going to protect you. I'm not going to run. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to lead you beside the, the still waters. I'm going to restore your soul. I'm going to, I'm going to lead you to green pastures. Like that's what the good shepherd is. And that's, that's the model for pastoral ministry. It doesn't matter what role you, you have, uh, you, you just have to care for people. That's a great word. So good. I think good, a good note to end on. I really appreciate you, uh, sharing these thoughts and we'll put a link to your book. And, uh, yeah, I think this is something that I think it's encouraging to see one, that there's a historic rootedness in the way Christians have thought about the way our bodies and our emotions and our minds interplay with each other. But also in like what you said, it, it, it is simple and it is not just for pastors, but for any Christian, you know, being uh, rejoicing with one another, suffering with one another, loving one another, being patient, forgiving. Um, I, 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 you could almost, there are some times when you read Paul and you're like, is he just soft? And you're like, no, he's a, he's like a hard, like he's a charging, like strong-willed man, but he has this very tender side. And he might sound more like your friend who is talking to his daughter saying, I'll always be your dad, but I'm not going to enable you. I think that's that blend of that mm-hmm. conviction and force, but deep, deep tenderness Right. Is the, the sort of tenderness that would be constantly in prayer for those he loved. Right, right, right. Matt, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And uh, hope uh, you guys found this helpful. Again, I'm going to put uh, Matt's book on the uh, show notes so you can pick it up and check it out. He's also got podcasts everywhere. He's been interviewed a few times, so check those out as well. But I appreciate you guys listening. Leave a review, share with your friends, and we'll be back next week.